I'm Brian Scordato, and this is the Idea to Start a Podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. We accelerate ideas into real companies through the Tacklebox membership, and we think through startup strategy every Wednesday on the Idea to Start Up Podcast. You're here because you're thinking about an idea, or you're ready to launch something, or you already launched something and you're running full steam ahead. We're here to help with the counterintuitive stuff. On to it. Today, we're on to part two of how to start a startup in an hour a day. We will do two things today. We're going to identify what type of entrepreneur you are, and we're going to introduce a two-week rhythm that will allow you to make substantial progress in an hour a day. If you're trying to get momentum on an idea, this is the way you're going to do it. If you didn't listen last week, we talked about why my dad hates lawyers. Again, not the people, but the debt built up by the way they operate. We all have tons of lifestyle debt, which we broke into emotional debt and behavioral debt. And that debt accumulates and compounds as you get older. Recognizing it and scraping it off your life like barnacles off the bottom of a boat frees you up to do all sorts of things. Last week, we audited your lifestyle debt and found you an hour to work on your business each day without sacrificing anything else important. Someone sent me a great email after the pod. A listener had had stomach pains for years. She tried everything from physical therapy to pharmaceutical solutions to elimination diets to more fringe things like being hypnotized. After a few years, a chiropractor she was seeing for the first time for a separate injury asked, hey, do you get stomach pain? Yeah, she replied, wondering how the chiropractor could have possibly known. Yeah, I can see that, they said. You breathe completely wrong. Almost no air gets into your diaphragm. The chiropractor recommended a breathing workshop, which is apparently a thing that exists, and three weeks later, the stomach issue was gone. Apparently, breathing correctly and strengthening her diaphragm activated her parasympathetic system, which triggered the rest and digest state. The system worked again. Most people don't breathe right, she said. We're never really taught how to breathe, and as we get older and sit at a computer all day and hunch over screens, we get strength imbalances in our core and back and glutes and stomach, and our body kind of adopts the new posture, and we spiral slowly away from neutral. She called it physical debt to match the behavioral and emotional debt, and I loved it. The big lesson from last week is that we don't spend enough time examining the inputs that stack up on each other to create our outputs. We don't examine the debt we've accumulated and carry with us. We assume that adding to whatever system we've already got is the answer, but the way to make progress is almost always to remove stuff. So anyway, last week we found you an hour a day to work on your startup. This week, we're going to figure out what the heck you should do with that hour, how to build a system that makes your default hour more impactful than most people's days, how to create a rhythm week after week that'll move you towards something substantial, how to create momentum, how to balance fast and slow. The job of an entrepreneur early on is to prepare themselves and their business for growth. It won't happen by accident. So today, we're going to prepare. We'll start by auditing what type of entrepreneur you are, a storyteller, a builder, or a manager. Then we'll build your operating rhythm. We'll get you momentum. We'll do it on purpose. And we'll use a few example companies to help us along. But before we get to all that, we've got to talk about my grandma's gnocchi. My birthday was a few weeks back, and whenever my birthday rolls around, I think about my grandma. She was an old Italian lady I called Nana, who put a half a can of hairspray in my hair on Sundays to show me off to her friends at church, and, more importantly for the purposes of this podcast, made me gnocchi on my birthday every year. I adored Nana. Gnocchi was my favorite food, and on my birthday she'd make me my own huge private batch. Everyone else had to count out their gnocchi, 
they get like eight or nine each. But for my birthday, I got a giant Tupperware full. My dad loved gnocchi just as much as I did, and his birthday was the day after mine, but he didn't get a Tupperware full of gnocchi. He had to count out his nine gnocchi like everyone else. I was special. I've only recently realized that the same thing that happened to my dad is about to happen to me when I have a kid this December. I'm going to get leapfrogged by this little guy. Oh well, I had a good run. Anyway, I remember watching my Nana cook, something she was doing probably 85% of the time I saw her. She was always fiddling with things, adding a bit of this or that, tasting, adding a bit more, tasting again, muttering Italian words I didn't understand. Sometimes someone walking by would steal a bite. I vividly remember my uncle once trying the sauce and saying it needed more salt and my grandma scoffing at him and saying, oh, what do you know? I swear his portion of manicotti was one third everyone else's that night. Once the raw ingredients of whatever she was making tasted or felt right, she'd call on all the grandchildren, me and my cousins, for production. We'd shape the gnocchi into little balls or fill the capoletti with one scoop of meat and fold them up like little envelopes or pinch and twist the tortellini around our thumbs. My grandma would supervise, harshly correcting our form and getting more and more frustrated until after about five minutes she'd shoo us out of the kitchen and finish all the work on her own. I'm telling this story for three reasons. First, I always think about my Nana this time of year, and I miss her, so I put her in the pod. Second, I always get a bit of a laugh when someone orders gnocchi at a restaurant, and they're going on and on about how good they are, and then I try them, and they taste like little rubber pellets, and I feel bad for this poor person that thinks that that is good gnocchi. You have no idea what good gnocchi is until you've tasted Francis Baldoni Scordato's gnocchi, and unfortunately, that shop's been closed for a while. My dad and I never order it anywhere, even Italy, because it's a disappointment every time. And third, because that process, the way my Nana went about it, is great for making gnocchi for your family on Sunday, but it's terrible for building a business, which seems obvious, but it's the way that probably 75% of entrepreneurs that come our way go about building their businesses, and it doesn't work. There's a chance you're building your business this way without even knowing it, a good one. Today, we'll make sure you're designing your time to match your skill set and to maximize the chance that what you're building works out, and we'll do it all after a little smooth jazz. If you've got a startup idea and a full-time job and want to test out the former before you leave the latter, come and work with us. Apply at gettacklebox.com. Over 400 startups have tested and built ideas through our program, and those businesses are now collectively worth over a billion dollars. Our program helps you prioritize and execute, and our members and me and the team keep you accountable and give you feedback along the way. Come build with us at gettacklebox.com. Back to it. The storyteller, the builder, and the manager. There's an idea I've been pitched a bunch lately, probably seven to 10 times over the past, maybe three to five months. Two of those pitches stand out and they're perfect examples for today's pod. I reached out to each person asking if I could talk about their idea on here and both were totally cool with it, mostly because neither was still pursuing it. In a few minutes, you're probably gonna know why. The idea is outsourced company offsites. Lots of companies have either moved to fully or partially remote, which really ups the stakes for whenever the employees all do get together in person. Most of these companies never threw anything more than a holiday party in the past, so this is totally foreign. They don't know what they want, they don't know what a good outcome would be, but they know that people are quiet quitting or loud quitting or whatever is currently happening whenever you listen to this, and they don't want to lose employees. So the startups helping big companies with offsites seem to be getting some traction because it seems like companies think that it's a thing that they should probably be doing. Momentum is good. Quick side story. A friend of mine works at a pretty corporate place that is trying to get employees to come back to the office. 
Apparently, they threw a happy hour after work last week to entice people to show up in person, complete with a DJ blasting get low at like 545 on a Monday in the lobby. Startup life is hard, but every once in a while I hear something like that and I think, sure, I might not have the stability that that person has, but at least I don't have to make small talk with a coworker while balancing a warm Amstel light as a DJ plays a club banger from 2002 in my company's lobby. And side note on the side story, I assumed Get Low was from like 2011 and said that at first, but then I googled it for accuracy and got very self-conscious about the song being 20 years old. Then I played it, and it's both wildly aggressive and still kind of good. It's been a real roller coaster over the last few minutes here on 88th Street. Anyway, here's how the two founders I'm talking about approached solving the problem. The first had been in events his whole life. He'd run a catering business after college and worked at a restaurant that had an event space that he managed after that. He absolutely loved putting on events. He loved the logistics of it, figuring out what food to make, how to source it, how to get it there fresh. He loved having staff he could scale up or scale down, the decorations, the flow of the event itself, the lighting, the photographs. He took enormous pride in his ability to run great events. He saw a huge opportunity to build a business that ran these events for companies. He ran some customer interviews and ended up with what he considered customers right off the bat. These were companies that hired him to run their offsite events for employees, and he did. He did all the things I just talked about. He created custom events and he nailed them. He took a decent margin and used that to get a website up and get a few more customers. He told the story of how impactful these events would be on company culture, and he got some more customers. He started getting referrals and signing more companies on, many of them signing up for quarterly or even monthly events. Each event was different, different size, different needs, different process. He immediately was overwhelmed, stressing about locations and double booking. He couldn't run two events at once because he was always the one on the ground, the point of contact. The reviews were great, but they were all about him, how nice he was, how easy to work with, how unique an event he threw. The whole business lasted about four months before he was completely burnt out. He hasn't run an event since. I asked why he thought it didn't work, and he said, quote, Nothing can scale in that space. Too many people want too many different things, and there's no margin. Well, all right. He was a storyteller. The second founder took a completely different approach. He was a full-stack developer who saw a marketplace, venues that needed customers and companies that wanted to throw events at venues scale, venture money, and exit. So he spent a month building out a custom marketplace. Venues could sign up and companies could search through them. Both sides could rate and review each other. This was the key, he said, so that if a company was a bad customer, venues could avoid them. Complete transparency. Everyone would be on the five-star system, just like Uber. A business could sort by, say, active events in a five-mile radius during a specific date range. Maybe they'd see a driving range in a bowling alley. They could send a request to both. There was a contingency if the bowling alley or driving range wasn't yet on the platform. A cold email was triggered telling that place that they had a potential event customer. There was a payments platform where the money would be held in escrow until the event was completed. Insurance was even built in. He'd run ads for months and set up a few virtual assistants sending cold emails to basically every company in New York City. He concluded that the space wasn't ready for a product. It was all too new. How many events had he run? I asked. Well, we never actually closed any events. It was just too early. Well, all right. He was a builder. These are, for the most part, the two types of entrepreneurs that are out there. Storytellers and builders. There's a third, but they're pretty rare. We'll talk about them in a second. 
you probably already clocked which of these two you are, which is the first step. Here's a bit of a psychographic profile on each. I have spent a bunch of time with both of them. The storyteller cares deeply about the customer. They want to solve the customer's problem, but they think that they are the solution for everyone. So they usually end up working with all sizes and shapes of customers and being flexible in their offering to meet all the different needs. If you've got a problem, they can figure it out. They can't separate themselves from the business and usually overrate how unique their skill sets actually are, trying to handle every part of the process. They think if they don't, it won't work. They're wrong. Obviously, this is impossible to scale. Storytellers usually end up running consulting firms, or worse, consulting firms masquerading as startups, which just means they don't charge what they're worth. Consulting is a tough business, especially if you think you're starting a startup, so most of these businesses torture the founder for a little while, and then they quit. Storytellers also take rejection really hard. Since they are the product, if you aren't interested, it feels personal. It also makes it less likely that they'll have a specific offering because if the offering is for someone, it's not for a bunch of other people and that will be painful to hear. If you feel yourself saying, we can build something for all of these people, beware. By nature, I'm a storyteller. So was my grandma. That's why she didn't trust anyone to touch her capoletti. The thing that's so frustrating about storytellers is how close they are. Empathy is a startup superpower. The system we'll build later will help amplify the good of storytellers and balance out the bad. But without the system, storytellers are doomed. Builders are the opposite. They don't care about the customer. Not really. They care about building a product. There's a quote I love by Kathy Sierra. It goes, quote, upgrade your customer, not your product. Don't build better cameras, build better photographers. Builders are interested in building better cameras for an idea of a customer that usually doesn't exist. Lots of times, they don't even know what would make their customer a good photographer. They invent problems, then invent solutions to solve them, solving the niche for a customer that doesn't exist. Builders usually end up with a finished product in search of a customer that wants it. That never ends well. And just because you aren't technical doesn't mean you aren't a builder. We've seen plenty of entrepreneurs pay development shops to build stuff for a customer that doesn't exist. If being a builder sounds bad too, it's also not. Forward motion, especially with a product, is an amazing thing in the startup world. We just need to make sure that development is anchored by customer insight. That's what we'll build a system for. Builders, just like storytellers, are so close. Where storytellers take every piece of customer feedback and try to work with it, builders usually take none. They'll talk about how Steve Jobs knew what people needed and built it, so why can't they, forgetting that they are not Steve Jobs. The last type of entrepreneur is rare. It's the manager. They usually don't have their own ideas, or at least ideas that they're willing to go all in for. What they're passionate about is the business itself, the structure, building a thing that works and grows and can live and breathe on its own, building a thing you can put in your hand and give to someone, sell to someone. Figuring out how to combine the best of the builder and the storyteller is the passion of the manager. Everyone's got some of each of these archetypes in them. It's usually something like 85%, 10%, 5% in some direction. I'm sure that someone out there is a perfect split of all three, but I think about them like I think about giant squid in the Natural History Museum. They exist, but we've really only ever seen them washed up on a beach in Cape Town dead. None of these characteristics is a deal breaker. Not knowing and planning for your specific mix is. And planning for it and building for it won't happen by accident. So let's build a system.
Momentum. We talked last week about how the most successful entrepreneurs win with breadth and then depth. They test out 10 times more avenues than other entrepreneurs and go extremely deep on one-tenth as many as other entrepreneurs do. They go wider and then they go deeper. Context before deep focus is their secret weapon. This is really hard to do because it means that most of the avenues you explore won't be the ones you pursue. This is a recipe for stalled momentum, but if you're working for an hour a day, you need momentum. So we need to build a system that creates it. We need to be wary of the drawbacks of this type of work. When you build a startup, you're building two products. One is the actual product. The other is the product that is the business, the internal product. Most entrepreneurs go at this in a haphazard way. The internal product we're building needs to create momentum. It needs to generate tons of inputs from customers so that you can synthesize them and create an output, your external product. Most entrepreneurs we've worked with who had jobs had about an hour a day to work on their idea, so that's always been the constraint we design for. When you have an hour a day, you need to be spending it on the most impactful, differentiated thing you possibly can. There's no time to waste. The internal product needs to ensure you're doing that. You're building a system that'll figure out what people want in the most direct and fast way possible. We think about it at Tacklebox as your rhythm, and we break it into two-week sprints. Each sprint has three parts. First, the question you'll try to answer by the end of the sprint that organizes every action for the next two weeks. Second, the tactics you'll use to answer that question. And third, the structure to keep you on track, reflection, accountability, and support that ensure storytellers and builders are working on the right stuff. Sprints are a balance between fast and slow. You're going to be slow on the stuff that really matters, speaking with customers, understanding their problems, understanding and creating boundaries around potential customer segments, understanding their jobs to be done, understanding how you can give them superpowers. You're going to be fast on execution, fast to outsource things other people can do 80% as well as you can, things like cold emails or websites, or even potentially speaking with some customers. At the beginning of each sprint, I always write one sentence that's kind of silly, but it's been helpful at the top of my page. Quote, make sure there's an opportunity for people to tell me I'm an idiot. During each sprint, I need to have honest interactions with people to see if the opinion I've got is wrong. If there isn't that possibility for each sprint, you don't have enough customer interaction. Here is an example. Let's say we decided to test out the same business our builder and storyteller friend from before went after. Maybe we thought there was opportunity for bigger businesses to have week-long offsites that taught a specific skill. So maybe a week-long offsite to get everyone on the same page about, say, agile. We'd start with the key question you wanted to ask, the thing that, if you're wrong about, the whole business doesn't work, the key assumption. A good place to start with this is always the key question. What's the thing that you believe about the space that no one else does, either because they disagree with you or because they just haven't seen the opportunity yet? In this case, it would be that companies want to implement Agile, but it's been hard to get everyone together for a focused amount of time to teach and implement it. Now that people are remote, offsites are actually easier than before. The opportunity for focused retreats is better now than it's ever been. So the question that can anchor our sprint becomes, quote, do companies see adopting Agile as an urgent problem they're struggling to solve? When we lay out a two-week sprint, figuring out the question and figuring out the actions we're going to take to answer that question are always happening on the first day. I like that day to be Sunday, but it can be Monday if you like. 
It's also the time to make sure that we're creating an opportunity for customers to tell us we're idiots. Customer words and actions are the only data points we accept. For the builders, no building without that. The other to-do list item for that first day is making yourself accountable for the sprint. After the two-week sprint, you need to present your findings to someone, whether that's a program you're a part of, a mastermind group, a friend, outside perspective is critical. Do all the silly things. Say you'll pay your friend a hundred bucks if you don't do what you say you're going to do. Start an email with 50 people on it and say you're going to send them an update every two weeks. Create an accountability group where you send five-minute asynchronous videos every other Sunday documenting your progress. Just make sure you're on the hook and make sure there's a paper trail that you can follow to track how things are moving along. Making things visible is a superpower. If you want to lose weight, send a picture of every piece of food you eat to a friend every time you eat it. If you want to get people to slow down, put up one of those speed signs that shows how fast they're going. Visibility works. So for that first week, if we're trying to see if companies see adopting Agile as an urgent problem, we've obviously got to talk to a bunch of companies that we think might be interested in adopting Agile. We need to figure out who at the company would be in charge of that, why they get promoted, what the company plus Agile would equal, what the superpower we would create would be, what the best case scenario is, and what's all the existing infrastructure we're going to have to work within. Then we need to speak to 10 or 15 more companies to get the total lay of the land. This is an exercise in context. So maybe Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday are pure outreach. Cold emails, LinkedIn messages, messages to your network asking to be put in touch with people. Maybe you speak with companies that already teach Agile to learn more about the supply side and why you'd be better. Everything is through the lens of whether this is actually a problem that's painful, frequent, urgent, growing, and expensive for anyone whether it's something they would solve, whether it's worth your time to try. After two weeks, the idea is to have narrowed down that answer and to have an opinion on it. Maybe that opinion is that companies that just raised the Series B would be interested in immersive coaching for their new technical hires to start implementing Agile so that they can eventually move off the outsourced development team that built their first product. The question has become much more specific. Do Series B companies want this? Maybe for the next sprint, you create landing pages and run specific outgoing cold email tests to see if you can schedule a demo with anyone. The cadence is broad, narrow, broad, narrow, until something hits. This structure keeps storytellers and builders on track. It keeps you making progress. We're going to actually test out a full startup with this next week, soup to nuts. It should make this much more real. We're also thinking about building out a full program for this to keep folks on track to teach the tactics that would go along with each sprint. Head to gettacklebox.com slash rhythm, R-H-Y-T-H-M, to get on the list if and when we ever make this. And have a great week. This was the Idea to Startup podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. If you got a startup idea and a full-time job, head to gettacklebox.com and we'll help you with the former so that you can quit the latter. Apply on the site and we'll get back to you within 72 hours. You can be working on your idea by the weekend.